This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 3rd of February 2024. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with the journalist Nina De Santos. Then we're joined in the studio by Ruth Field and Alice Haddon, the co-founders of the Heartbreak Hotel, to find out how their retreat is designed to help you heal your heart. First, though, here's the news. The US military launched airstrikes in Iraq and Syria last night against more than 85 targets linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard and the militias it backs in retaliation for last weekend's attacks in Jordan that killed three US troops. The strikes, which included the use of long-range B-1 bombers flown from the US, are the first in a multi-tiered response by President Joe Biden's administration and more US military operations are expected in the coming days. The Ukrainian government has informed the White House that it plans to fire the country's top military commander overseeing the war against Russian occupation forces, two knowledgeable sources said on Friday. The move to oust General Valery Zelushny, who's clashed with President Vladimir Zelensky over a range of issues, follows the Ukrainian counteroffensive last year that failed to recover significant amounts of Russian-held territory. And Argentina's lower chamber of deputies gave overall approval to libertarian President Javier Malay's sweeping omnibus reform bill in a vote on Friday after days of debate, paving the way for a decisive vote in the Senate. Passing its initial hurdle in the lower house of Congress, the legislation marks the president's first major test since taking office in December after a shock election win for The Economist, who made his name as an acid-tongued TV pundit and campaigned with a chainsaw, pledging to slash the size of the state. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday and a big welcome to my guest too, the international broadcast correspondent and former CNN Europe editor Nina De Santos. Good morning to you, Nina. Good morning, Georgina. How has your week been? Uh, well, I, I ran 10 miles one day before 10am, so that was quite you know invigorating. Um, apart from that, um, it's really hard to avoid the dismal news that keeps happening. It feels as though we're, we're kind of tumbling into a world that's becoming more and more unstable. And I find my counterbalance to that is to listen to podcasts, listen to the news, but thrash it out on the pavements by yeah. running past Parliament, several bridges and several parks. <laughs> well, I think that's a great strategy. I, my strategy this last week was just to get away from it all. So I went to Cartagena in Colombia. Oh, my gosh. Well, um. that's a lot more glamorous <laughs> than running past Lambeth Bridge. <laughs> you got one on me. It was um, it was a literary festival, um, and so that was lovely um, in this beautiful, you know, UNESCO World Heritage walled city, uh, and uh, right on the Caribbean um, with the literary festival. So just some of the smartest minds from Latin America and beyond uh, sitting there talking about a range of issues. But of course, all of these problems in the world did keep coming up again and again and again. It doesn't matter where you are, how beautiful it is. The world is definitely in a mess, and everybody is talking 
talking about it. I think you're right, yeah. Whether it's Latin America, you know, further south, um, you've got, you know, issues such as a very right-wing president of Argentina yet again about to throw a hand grenade at uh, the economy over there as if it hasn't suffered enough. And then we've got Ecuador and Peru being destabilised by, you know, the drug trade and gang violence. So, yeah, you can't get away from it. Mm. Um, Some of those problems actually emanate from the fact that Colombia over the last decade or two has been able to clean up its act quite significantly, haven't they? (laughs) I was so impressed. Colombia is a place full of young people who are hungry and ready to go. This is a country that is gasping to take its place on the world stage. There's so much energy there. There was so much kind of dynamism. I was so impressed by so many of the people that I met. And also a lot of the conversations which were uh, quite focused on South to South. And I thought that was really interesting. There were a lot of Africans uh, over for, for, for the festival, all talking about how the hemisphere can be talking to itself, to each other, uh, and how these the solutions don't necessarily need to come from from the West. Or indeed the United States, which yeah. has been the big, you know, dominant power, hasn't it? And is now distracted with other events elsewhere around the world. And I think we can't escape whether you're at a literary summit or obviously the greatest minds in the world of literature are going to be forming their ideas and putting pen to paper. We'll see their publications in the next two th- books published in the next two, three years from now. They're going to be influenced by the turbulent state of the world at the moment and also growing US isolation and disinterest, particularly when it comes to some of the, you know, hot spots that are closer to its borders, like south of the US border in the United States. Mm. Uh, Of course, we can expect disinterest possibly after the next election. Right now, though, Biden is pretty much focused on the Middle East. And of course, we saw this last night. The US struck the Middle East 85 different targets. Uh, And many people saying that, of course, this has happened. We know that it's going to continue happening. Biden may be left with no choice but to hit Iran directly if attacks on American troops don't stop. Well, this is the big uh, multi-million dollar question isn't it, or potentially trillion dollar question at this point. It's uh, got many geopolitical strategists and foreign policy wonks sitting on the edge of their seats and obviously the United States trying desperately to navigate this difficult balance between um, deterrence and also escalation in a region that's already a tinderbox. I mean, not just Iran, obviously a lot of it has to do with the so-called axis of resistance that Iran has created um, with these proxies like, for instance, the Houthis, Hezbollah over in Lebanon. Um, And this has all been sort of ignited after the October the 7th Hamas attacks. But the US, yes, as you were saying, and some of its allies, like, for instance, the United Kingdom, getting dragged further and further into this problem. Um, First, as we saw, it was in the Red Sea, cargo ships getting hit, influencing um, the cost of world trade, particularly for places like the UK, Israel and the United States. And now, you know, we saw over the weekend that attack on a US military base in Jordan, killing three US service uh, personnel and the Biden administration under huge pressure from inside his own party elsewhere around the world and particularly vocal members of the Republican uh, Party to do something about it and counteract, as you were saying, not just hitting proxies like we've seen here in Iraq and Syria over the last couple of days, but going for something in Iran itself. Now, what's different about what's happened now as opposed to um, the United States firing back at Houthis attacking ships is that they appear to have struck out at infrastructure um, which is owned or operated by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps 
as well as some of those proxies uh, operating in Syria and Iraq, including the group the Islamic Resistance in Iraq, which claimed responsibilities for that attack on the US base in Jordan. Um, but it might well be that we see more over the next few days. We've seen John Kirby, um, you know, take to the podium brief journalists on air in the US saying that this might be part of a wave of strikes. Obviously, the Biden administration allowing itself some wiggle room to potentially escalate from what we've seen overnight. Mm. Uh, And of course, there was plenty of warning that these strikes were coming. We heard that the United States would hit back at a time and at a place and at a pace of their choosing. So I wonder how much damage was actually inflicted. I mean, possibly infrastructural, but you would think that people with that much notice would have just got the hell out. And perhaps that's part of the initial strategy, particularly Georgina, when, as I was saying before, the administration is briefing that this might be the first wave of other waves um, that of attacks that they might engage in, um, you know, targeting some of these proxies in Iran, as you were saying before, targeting potentially more, maybe ships of Iran, who knows, you know, uh, offshore. Um, Obviously, there are lots of former U.S. service personnel, important uh, former members of the Marine, who have speculated that, you know, this probably this attack uh, might not have done a huge amount because obviously it was so well signalled earlier in advance. But it would have been expensive. I mean, they used, uh, you know, planes, ships, 125 precision guided munitions. And you've got to remember that the United States and the UK and other uh, targets in this region are fighting an asymmetric war here, aren't they? Because it's quite cheap for some of these militia groups to, you know, fire off these drones each time uh, the United States and others engage with these Houthis, for instance, or uh, whichever group it is that uh, is backed by Iran that they're targeting, say, in this part of the world, um, it's expensive. Mm. They're having to use really expensive hardware, traditional uh, military, you know, uh, hardware versus, for instance, these rather cheap and opportunistic uh, munitions that Iran is buying and able to produce. Mm. And of course, yeah, I mean, they, they actually flew long-range B-1 bombers from the US yeah. to carry out these attacks. Now, there is a certain type of person that loves the idea of that, of course, uh, uh, and um, uh, generally masculine. I'm not wanting to stereotype here, but war is more, usually seen as, as more of the male domain. Now, there is an extraordinary article here, which I think absolutely nails it. It's in a publication called Persuasion that you've found uh, and it's an article by Rachel Kleinfeld. Uh, you are the mother of sons, Nina. Yeah, two and sons. And my twin sister also has two sons. Wow. So I, the, the gender pendulum in our family has swung firmly from uh, very female to the new generation in our family is my mother only has sisters. The new generation is all boys. Mm. And I'm very concerned about this um, targeting by right wing political factions of young male disenfranchisement, which is exactly what this uh, professor here, uh, Rachel Kleinman, is talking about. Uh, she's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And she's pointing out that wherever you are around the world, we started off this conversation uh, this half hour, Georgina, talking about Latin America and the rise of the right there, say, in Argentina. Um, If you're, you know, in Argentina, if you're in Brazil nearby, uh, whether you're in Eastern Europe, even though people like Donald Tusk, the more moderate candidate, finally triumphed in the Polish elections recently, that was a sigh of relief for Europe. You look at the amount of men and the statistics of how many are voting further and further to the right, and it is extremely alarming.
Mm. Why is this? What does what does Kleinfeld say? She more or less says, and these are some of these arguments that we heard before, one of the things that piqued her interest in this subject actually to pen this article appears to have been an analysis in the Financial Times earlier this week, which I also read and spotted, um, which essentially talks about sort of economic disenfranchisement, political disenfranchisement, and also educational disenfranchisement. That's really where it starts, educational attainment gaps between girls and boys, um, and a very sort of vocal conversation that, you know, you and I will have been part of, uh, thankfully, over the last 20 years of female achievement and empowerment. And the idea, she's saying here, is that we're not championing enough positive male uh, role models um, that are achievable for various different swathes of society. And also, she says, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing what she says here, is that, you know, when it comes to blue-collar workers, the American dream is dead. They're not earning anywhere near the money that they used to earn. Um, And it's leaving them feeling essentially uh, economically redundant. And so we're not answering... um, the needs of whole swathes of the population around the world at various ends of the income spectrum. Mm. And she's saying this leaves you emotionally unmoored and and, and she Mm. says that more and more men are being recruited into extremist politics and violence and it's not through far-right ideology or racism but just trying to figure out how to be a man. You're Googling, I don't know, how to build muscle or whatever. Suddenly you're in these, I don't know, incel groups. These men are having less and less sex because women want higher educational attainment and, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and before long, the algorithms are pulling these young men into groups that, that do foster this kind of political thought. And we've seen this time and time again. I mean, I'm thinking about the time when uh, Jair Bolsonaro was uh, elected as president of Brazil. He was polling hugely among young men. And one of the entrees for some of this sort of, you know, political right-wing thinking is sometimes, as you were pointing out, yeah, Guitar lessons on YouTube. I remember the New York Times did a special feature on that. Some uh, young kid in Brazil wanted to learn how to play the guitar, thought he'd found some great sort of YouTube channel. And before you knew it, he was descending further and further into, um, you know, further right wing thinking because the guitar instructor, it turns out, had that type of political um, persuasion and was wearing it very uh, clearly on YouTube. Um, Also, video gaming forums as well, a huge target for this. And what's really interesting about this article uh, that um, this uh, academic has written and I urge people to read it, is she's talking about how Steve Bannon, uh, the right-wing political thinker of Donald Trump, you know, the architect of his uh, ascendance to power in 2016, he specifically bought a video gaming website and realised that it had all these communities of isolated young men who were angry. And that's where he managed to, um, you know, coax in the uh, right-wing firebrand, now disgraced Milo Yiannopoulos, to try and mobilise this army of of young male disenfranchised voters and get them to vote for Trump. And he talks about it here. Mm. Now, a lot of uh, what they're trying to get young men to believe are conspiracy theories. And there is an enormous one doing the rounds in the United States at the moment. And this is all to do with the world's most popular artist, Taylor Swift. That's right. This is that was a beautiful segue, by the way. I've got to say, done with a plan because um, this is the this is the the downside of this sort of toxic masculinity conversation, uh, you know, which has been catapulted right into the um, forefront of public consciousness this week because, of course, we've had this sort of 
deep fake pornography problem where uh, somebody's disseminated fake mocked up AI generated images of Taylor Swift that are obscene. Uh, they were disseminated on uh, X, the, for- the site formerly known as Twitter, which also, by the way, after having been bought by Elon Musk, who champions some of these sort of right wing some might say toxic masculine ideals. Um, they X had to 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 start blocking people from being able to search these images. And you know, so not only is she uh, as a as a very successful, uh, empowered, attractive young woman, stoking the ire of um, this type of right wing toxic masculinity, but she's now at the centre of all these conspiracy theories. So she's got a boyfriend who, as we now know, is a very famous and successful American footballer. She's been quite public with her displays of affection with him over the last few weeks. And now suddenly she's at the centre of all manner of conspiracy theories from the right, particularly suggesting that even, you know, the American word of American football and music is conspiring against those who want to quote unquote make America great again. You know, sort of Trump hardcore Trump supporters. Um, And it really, again, as I was saying before, highlights that awful tension uh, between positive and negative uh, male and female role models Mm. that we're seeing in America. And, and I mean, there's a, there was a great piece in the, in the Times yesterday, uh, Gerald Baker was writing, he was saying that those peddling the theory that her relationship is a, a deep state plot don't believe it, but they know that people will lap it up. I mean, these are intelligent people going, you know, they're conspiring against uh, 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 against the Republicans, uh, that they are going to make everybody vote, vote for Biden. They know that's not true. How many sports people would have to sacrifice their careers in order for that to work? It's not going to happen. But they know they've got enough followers, hence back to the young men you were talking about who will believe it. Yeah, that's right. And these two individuals are hugely successful and have a huge amount of followers. There's a lot of people who, let's face it, will be jealous of somebody as attractive as Taylor Swift, who's now a billionaireess, you know, appears to be sort of the epitome of a confident, emancipated, performing uh, woman and, you know, her... um, new boyfriend who you know epitomizes those sort of ideals of American virility I suppose because he's an American football star and he's got an according big bank balance and all that there will be people who'd be jealous of these type of figures and whereas 20 it's really quite sad I think because 20 odd years ago people would have held these people up on a pedestal wouldn't you agree Georgina you know there would be no reason you know yeah there might be the odd sort of tabloid sting I'm thinking Hugh Grant you know caught on a sunset boulevard uh, but but you know knocking people down like this and also bolting on this kind of political conspiracy theories um I think I think it's uh, it's symptomatic of a very dark era that we've we've entered at the moment, um, particularly in U.S. politics. It's mm. really quite sad. I just want to take us to another part of the globe and to happier places. <laughs> please, please, <laughs> or pay, play some Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, the Venice Carnival. Yes, I love the Venice Carnival. Full disclosure, actually. Uh, I did not get to go to Cartagena, but I was supposed to be in Venice today <laughs> for the start of the carnival. And why and, are you not? Um, I ended up not going, uh, ended up staying here. Um, Childcare, actually. Funnily enough, it's one of those things that affects lots of us uh, women <laughs> when we have children, hence part of our previous uh, debate before. Um, but I do love the Venice Carnival. I lived, had the opportunity to live uh, just near Venice and study there for a year. Um, the one thing I will warn any of our listeners is that it is 
terribly cold at this time of year. And even though the atmosphere is jubilant, there's nothing like a, you know, f- sitting there freezing uh, in your mask on the edge of a canal. But it's the 700th um, anniversary of Marco Polo's birth, the most famous citizen, one of the most famous citizens of Venice, and somebody who opened up the world's eyes all those years ago, 700 years ago, when he embarked as a 17-year-old with his father and his uncle off on this massive sort of unilateral (laughs) trade mission of the Venetian Republic. He went all the way to the Mongol Empire. He was greeted by Kublai Khan there. He went as far as Myanmar. Uh, And then eventually he came back 24 years later to regale everybody with his tales um, and apparently brought back the dish spaghetti, noodles, stuff like that, and silk. Um, And so they're going to be commemorating him finally, and hopefully they might finally build a statue to him because I was always perplexed that there's hardly any footprint and celebration of of Marco Polo there uh, in Venice. Uh, They had tried to build statues to him in the past and were prevented by people, previous, you know, um, marauding powers that had, had managed to conquer Venice, including Napoleon, and his house was destroyed back then, which was sad. Um, but finally, Venice's most celebrated son's going to be celebrated 700 years later. And uh, there is a new play coming, a one-man show. Uh, the actor Alessandro Bressanella has the role of Marco Polo. Uh, interestingly, Bressanella will also play Angelina Jolie's husband in a forthcoming biopic of Maria Callas. Now, Maria Callas is having a real moment the, right now. She's she seems to be everywhere. There's a brand new book, too, by Daisy Goodwin called Diva. Uh, and if people are interested in that, they should tune in to meet the writers because she was the subject. I love Daisy Goodwin. <laughs> um, of, she was the yeah. subject of, of last Sunday's programme, uh, and that's still online. And she talks beautifully about Diva uh, and, and the artist Maria Callas. And as I say, the connection there straight back to Marco Polo. Uh, Nina, very many thanks to you for, for being with us today. Uh, and um, I'm quite sure that you'll be back on the programme again soon. We'll be back with Monocle on Saturday. You're back with Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. Now, if your heart is broken or you know anyone who is going through heartbreak, you'll want to hear from my next guests. Joining me in the studio now, Alice Haddon and Ruth Field. They're co-founders of the Heartbreak Hotel, a retreat designed to help women heal from a broken heart. With Alice's training in counselling, psychology and Ruth's background in law, writing and coaching, the pair sought to develop an alternative offering to the weekly therapy work. The Heartbreak Hotel includes yoga, nature and group sessions and Condé Nast Traveller recently named it as one of the top 13 wellness retreats in the UK for 2024. Alice and Ruth, welcome. What a genius idea. I mean, and then you call it Heartbreak Hotel. How cool is that, Alice? Where did that come from? I think the name has carried us, really. Um, <laughs> makes people feel good and thinks of Elvis. Yeah. Um, what was your question? How did it start? Yeah. <laughs> um, it started in, in the lockdowns of COVID 2020 when um, my mum died and I was thrown into grief and um, was afforded by the lockdown time to really be in that grief and what that made me think was gosh when you're really in emotional pain you there's a lot you need that the busyness of everyday life can't give you you know to be looked after to not have to make any decisions to not make choices to kind of wander around in nature and be fed and these kinds of things and take time so 
I just thought maybe there's something more than the 50 minute session where you kind of you come in and you just get settled and then you're spat, spat out again. Mm. Um, and, you know, I listened to this radio program where this woman had been groomed online for her money. She'd fallen in love with this <clears throat> this guy and then he'd fleeced her for 20,000 quid or something and then run for the hills. And she was just so desperate and she said, I don't know where to go, I don't know where to go to get help. And that was the moment where I th those things came together and I thought, wow, I'm going to provide that space where she can go. Um, I decided to make it for women. And then I went to see Ruth, who... We We've been friends for, for years and years and we've talked a lot about working together. And I said, look, this is what I'm up to. This is what I'm thinking about. Do you want to do it? And she said, yes. Absolutely. So, Ruth, how does it work in practice? Your heart gets broken. We'll gloss over that bit for the moment. But then you check in. You check into the Heartbreak Hotel. And what happens to you? <sighs> yes, well, um, you check into the Heartbreak Hotel and then Alice has created this incredible um, process therapeutic process that each of the women are taken through but there's a sort of amazing kind of context in which that happens which is if you get sort of six or eight or ten women who've had the same experience and you bring them together Alice believed and she's absolutely right that there's a sort of the shared experience has this reflected healing a reflective the reflection of it increases and accelerates um, and magnifies the process so the women together they start by sharing their story of heartbreak. And that's really profound because, you know, you become completely connected to each other in your heartbreak. And then there's nowhere to sort of feel shy or embarrassed. Everyone's vulnerable right from the start. And then, you know, staying in that psychological process all weekend for three or four days you come on much, much further than you would if you were just 50 minutes once a week. So, you know, there's also in between these very intensive, powerful therapy sessions, there's got to be some relief between them. And that's where I come in a bit. And there's some, <laughs> some walking and delicious food. And believe it or not, a huge amount of laughter, which always surprises us. But of course, well, it shouldn't really, because, of course, women, when we get together, we can find something to laugh at, even in the face of, you know, enormous emotional pain. And that that's also part of it. And the mm. women completely connect and stay connected long after they leave the retreat. So you watch them sort of come completely down and broke, you know, feeling really broken hearted and they leave looking so much more confident and clearer and connected and mm. literally in their bodies as much as in their minds. We call it the heartbreak hotel Botox effect because <laughs> they really just look completely different. It's, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful thing to behold. Mm. So you do these retreats there four or five days. You also do day sessions within London. But now you've also written a book, uh, which means that people who can't actually get to any of your physical sessions can read about it. Uh, Finding Yourself at the Heartbreak Hotel, it's called. And in fact, I know that listeners are going to be able to tune in at some further date to listen to a Meet the Writers episode with you, which is all about the book. Uh, but this basically talks you through the, the way that you can do this on your own if you don't have access to your resources. Yeah, we wanted to um write it so that the reader felt like they were on the retreat um so we 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 talk very intimately to the reader and yeah we hope that they i mean obviously it's not the same as being on the retreat but very much hope that they get 
um, as much as they can of that experience and that nurturing and that care. Um. Mm. And I mean, we're very far then from, or perhaps not, perhaps it's just in a different, healthier way from the, the sort of Bridget Jones model of, of eating ice cream, drinking a great deal and singing along to I Will Survive. <laughs> well, I think there's definitely a place for, for that as well, <laughs> for sure. But but yes, I think we have we have moved on from yeah. that. But I mean, you, you concentrate more on wellness. For instance, there's no alcohol involved. Yes, I mean, we, you know, alcohol and technology can act as numbing influences on our feelings. And part of uh, the process, it's very important to connect with our feelings because our feelings are what guide us towards, you know, what's next and what we need. And so... You know, not drinking is, is we, we can use drink as a sort of crutch to numb painful feelings. But really, the only way to sort of feel better again is to stay with the feeling. So, mm. yeah, it's there is always time for a glass of wine, but it's not on our retreats, I'm afraid. Yeah. Or, in, or indeed, when reading the book, we recommend stay away from the wine as well. Yeah. And put down that phone. Don't text them. Whatever you do. <laughs> uh, Alice, finally, how do you contact? How do people find out more? They can go to our website, www.theheartbreakhotel.co.uk. Um, we're on Instagram at the Heartbreak, what is it? Heartbreak, Heartbreak Hotel, Hotel London. London. <laughs> um, and yeah, we they can book in for a chat if they um, want to come on one of our retreats. Excellent. Uh, Alison Roos, thank you very much indeed. So their book, Finding Yourself at the Heartbreak Hotel, is out now. And to hear more about the Heartbreak Hotel and their new book, you can listen to Meet the Writers next Sunday. And that's all for this programme. Thanks very much to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. My guests were Nina Dos Santos, Alice Haddon and Ruth Field. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>